From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Ah, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, Ian Robertson and his young apprentice Jamie are here. Jamie's uh, training on the board this evening, and she'll step in when Ian is off gallivanting with his rockabilly band. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here running the HOA Hangout on Air. Frank Thayer is standing by to talk about the Aztec UFO incident. Sometimes it's referred to as the other Roswell. This is a case that has been for years overshadowed by Roswell, but that may be about to change. Uh, Get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Go to the radio page for the conspiracy program. And up at the top, you'll find the slide carousel where Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits and news stories, feature articles, videos. Included in all that is, I want you to uh, check this out, it's the trailer uh, for Daniel Estulin's new documentary film. Daniel Estulin is the author of the true story of the Bilderberg Group. And he is, uh, he was recently nominated, get this, Daniel, who now lives in Spain, and uh, that book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, a runaway bestseller across Europe. He has been asked to speak to parliaments uh, across Europe and uh, South America, met Fidel Castro, who read his book, was very interested in his book. Uh, so he has this new documentary film. It's just out. It's called Bilderberg, the Movie. And the trailer is right there on the uh, on the slide carousel. Just click and that'll uh, go right through to the link on YouTube. Have a look at that. And that may whet your appetite, I'm hoping, because I'll be presenting the uh, Canadian theatrical premiere of this fine film in April. And I'll be bringing Daniel to Toronto from Spain, and he'll introduce the film, deliver a 90-minute presentation after the film, and there'll be a meet-and-greet and and a book signing and so forth. Details are upcoming. Just keep checking the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. But that's coming in April, and we'll have uh, specific dates and a venue and uh, ticket information, etc. Also posted on the slide carousel is an update on the Bank of Canada lawsuit. If you've been following this... Uh, featuring constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati. And that is slowly inching towards a trial, I'm told. A Hollywood actress, Natasha Blasik. Uh, is it Blasik or Blasik, Albert? Do we know? I think the first one. Uh, Blasik. Uh, the star of Paranormal Activity. Uh, did you read about this? She recently claimed to have enjoyed having sexual congress with a ghost. Uh, and Natasha Blasik uh, recently told the British television program this morning that the experience was, quote, really, really pleasurable, end quote. Uh, now, Natasha is coming on the program, right, Albert? When is that? The end of um, February, I think. February 28th. February 28th. All right. So, uh, Natasha Blasik from Paranormal Activity will t- talk about her uh, her affair with a ghost. I wonder how her husband feels about that. Didn't you tell me she was married, Albert? She's married. She's married. All right. Well, uh, who am I to judge, right? Anyway, uh, all right. Let's get on to the main entree here, friends. Uh, in early March of 1948, an unidentified aerial craft was reported hovering over Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And then about two weeks later, March 25th of 48, 
in Hart Canyon. A similar UFO was said to have made a controlled landing after being supposedly shot at by the military. And witnesses claim that something on the order of 16 dead humanoid figures were found near the craft or in the craft. And the craft itself was said to be about 99 feet in diameter, the largest UFO uh, to date. And the craft was alleged to be made of a, a material impervious to all heat. Every account noted a hole in the craft's portal and described the humanoid figures as childlike in size. Other reports were detailed, describing the creatures as between 36 and 42 inches in height, weight around 40 pounds. It was alleged that shortly after the craft was downed, the military cleared the area of evidence, including the bodies, and subsequently taking it to Hangar 18, infamous Hangar 18, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Indeed, the belief in Hangar 18, which is said to house every downed UFO captured in the United States, was spawned by the Aztec UFO incident. Now, it has been, the Aztec incident, dismissed or was dismissed as a hoax for decades. But now, UFO experts Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and Frank Fair reveal the exact spot where the craft landed and show how the 100-foot diameter saucer was moved to a secret lab. Witnesses to the incident who were interviewed by the authors affirm that they were sworn to secrecy by the military. Frank Thayer, Ph.D., is a New Mexico native with extensive journalistic and journalism education experience. He's now a professor emeritus at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. He has a, prof- um, a professional experience as a writer, editor, photographer, an educator. He is the co-author, along with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, of The Aztec UFO Incident, The Case, Evidence, and Elaborate Cover-Up of One of the Most Perplexing Crashes in History. Frank Thayer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm glad to talk to you. Let me first say that I lived in Toronto for 11 years. I taught journalism at Centennial College in Scarborough. Ah, and, my uh, old, that's I my lived... old alma mater. I oh, went to right. Centennial College. I, I was the first department head in journalism out there in 1966. Well, we may have well, we may have missed each other by about 25 years. <laughs> I, I guess so. Also, tell your producers that I was a rockabilly singer in my youth, and if you check my website frankthere.net, you can get some samples of my Presley style singing. So I, I feel at home tonight. Well, 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 you should. You are at home. Come on in and uh, grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire, as we like to say. So, Frank, um, why is it that, I mean, let's, for, let's first, uh, the comparisons between Aztec and Roswell. I mean, they don't end with, you know, these both took place in the late 40s in New Mexico, uh, not too far from each other. Now, where where is, first of all, Roswell or Corona in relation to Aztec? Okay, Roswell is in the eastern part of New Mexico, Mexico, about halfway up between uh, the Mexican border and the Colorado border. Aztec is up in the way northwest corner of the state, and it's called the Four Corners area because that's where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. So now you've got sort of a geographic lay of the land as to the differences. Uh, there's, you know, about three, three hundred miles between Corona and the, uh, the an Aztec, maybe 350. 
Right. Right. Okay. So uh, now, of course, Roswell is is the summer of forty seven, and this is March of forty eight. So not, about eight nine months later. Right. Um, why is it, do you suppose, that the Aztec incident? I mean, we're talking about scores of witnesses. We're talking about sixteen, possibly sixteen alien bodies. Uh, military, you know, combing the area, cover up and so forth. And yet, I'm guessing many listeners will be well familiar with, with Roswell, but not so much with Aztec. Why has Aztec, uh, been in the shadow of Roswell for so long? That's a long story, but we got a few minutes. Now, they say that the Aztec incident is like a bag of pretzels. There's twists and turns in it. And remember that Roswell was announced in 47, but it only lasted one day. People forget that nobody knew about Roswell, actually, until probably 1978, 79, and the first book that came out, Roswell Incident, in 1980. Aztec, however, there was a book about that in 1950. You'd think that, well, the the cat's out of the bag. But it didn't turn out that way because the government decided that we can't let anybody know about this. And they set about uh, destroying the reputations of everybody connected to that uh, revelation. And we, the book by Frank Scully, 1950, was behind the flying saucers. And nobody paid too much attention to it, even though it sold 50,000 copies. It seemed so outrageous. Back then, uh, we assumed that Earthlings were the only life in the universe, the only intelligent life. And that's the way people thought. So 33% in 1950 said they believe that there's something real about flying saucers. Today, it's well over half of the population says, we know that something out there is coming from somewhere else. As a matter of fact, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to accept the reality. So as far as the hoax goes, how did that start? Well, you got to go back to 1950 when an oil man named Silas Newton called Scientist X. He went on stage at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado, and talked to a Science 101 class. And he said, and we've got the tape recording of his lecture in 1950. It was on a wire recorder. We've got the whole thing on CD now. And he got up in front of a bunch of students and said, there is such a thing as a flying saucer. Can you imagine how that must have hit them back way back then? And he was hustled off the stage after he finished talking. And all of a sudden, the Air Force showed up in town saying, who was that man and where do we find him? And they had a tough time finding him. But he knew Silas, Silas Newton knew Frank Scully. And he also knew the scientists who worked on, on the saucer. He knew them because he was a geophysicist. And those people who were his friends before the war... Um, Well, they worked on secret projects after the war at Los Alamos, and they were the ones who examined the saucer. 1949, a a year after the saucer was recovered at Aztec, they told Scully and Silas Newton, they thought, well, the government's going to reveal this in a few months. We can tell you about it. All of a sudden, a year later, when Scully's book came out, Scully wrote this, people Men who would tell their story for nothing in 1949 would not tell it for $20 million in 1950. And that's what started the rot. And 
But if I can go a little further, let me tell you about a fellow named J.P. Kahn. Kahn, C-A-H-N. What an unfortunate was, name. <laughs> <laughs> what's in a name? Uh, was a rich guy. He was born rich, never had to work a day in his life. And he heard about this, and he went to Frank Scully. He wanted to buy the story of the Aztec saucer. Scully wouldn't sell. He wrote a book instead. Frank Scully was famous. He was a variety columnist. He was he wrote books. He was very well known in, in his time. And so Khan was sort of left standing there at the altar with no bride. And it, he was a very vindictive man. He okay. decided right then and there, I'm going to get him. All right, let me just jump in here. Uh, Frank Thayer is with us. The Aztec UFO incident. We'll, we'll uh, leave the story there just momentarily. We'll come back and, and find out why this incredible UFO crash and retrieval of a large saucer, including 16 dead aliens, why it was dismissed as a hoax for so long. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Frank Fair is here. The Aztec UFO incident, the case, evidence, an elaborate cover-up of one of the most perplexing crashes in history. And we're discussing why this case was dismissed as a hoax for decades. And, uh, Frank, as you were describing, there seemed to be uh, a bit of a, uh, uh, a vendetta here. Uh, two people that were trying to write about this incident, one, Frank Scully, the other, uh, kind of a, a dilettante or a debutante, uh, who was jealous of Frank Scully. Is that pretty much it? You've got it. You get use the right word, vendetta. J.P. Kahn, we were talking about just a few minutes ago, he, because he couldn't have the story, he decided he wanted to show that Frank Scully was duped with a false story. He went to the FBI. He wanted to find out about this Silas Newton guy and see if he could get him in trouble and ruin his reputation. And the FBI decided that they were going to play ball with him. And they tried to find anything they could to destroy Silas Newton and his, his compatriot, Leo Gebauer. And it took them a couple of years to do it. But finally, they got charges against him in a Denver district court for fraud. And he was, Silas Newton was a rich oil man. And you can't tell me that oil men don't have sharp deals because they do. And, but this is something that should have been a civil case. And they turned it into a, a, a case in a criminal case and found Silas Newton guilty. And there was things about doodlebugs, doodlebugs, which are supposed to determine things under the ground. Today we accept that as, as natural. But back then there were a lot of phony devices like that. And, but they never put Newton in jail. They made him pay court costs, but no fine. But what it led to was, of course, an article in True Magazine, which was a men's magazine in the 50s, uh, Flying Saucers and the Mysterious Little Men by J.P. Kahn. i got to give Kahn this. He's a good writer. He's an excellent writer. But what he did was destroy the reputation of Silas Newton in print. Never mentioned, Didn't really mention much about Flying Saucers and Little Men. But what he did by talking about this court case or this fraud that supposedly Newton engaged in, he ruined his reputation. And therefore, faulty logic, because this guy was in court and found guilty of fraud, Aztec had to be a hoax. 
and it's rested that way for decades. Uh, today we look back and say, that's impossible. But then again, people accepted that Roswell was a weather balloon for a long time as well. Right, right. So there you have it. Now, now Silas Newton, was he one of the, the witnesses? No. Silas Newton um, never saw a flying saucer as far as I could research and looking at his autobiography. But he knew the scientists who worked on the saucer after it was taken to Los Alamos. And they told him all sorts of stuff about it. And Scully referred to the scientists, eight or nine of them, as composite Dr. G, G-E-E. And he was not one man, he was eight or nine people. And so they were going to tell Scully all about this because they were sure the government was going to tell us the truth. And this is a perfect show for that. The government never did. And i got to digress here and say, the government never will tell about this. This is a secret that will remain forever. Uh, End of story. Right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm not holding my breath for disclosure uh, either. And <laughs> <laughs> John Podesta, uh, you know, regardless, it's just not going to happen. Um, and we don't need it from the government, quite frankly. However... Uh, so the the witnesses, how did you and the Ramses uh, track them down? First of all, how many were they there uh, present in at Hart Canyon in '48, and how many did you track down? We have to give Scott Ramsey top credit. Here's a guy who, starting in 1986, became obs- not obsessed, but he was concentrating on this. He spent by estimate, maybe half a million bucks in 30 years, tracking down as many of these people as he could. At first, of course, nobody knew how many witnesses there were. But he found two live witnesses. Now, remember that the government came onto the Mesa on the morning of March 25th, and they separated everybody and swore them to secrecy. In 1948, people trusted the government and believed whatever the government was going to tell them. After the most destructive war in human history and a Cold War starting up, you trusted the government. Uh, You can't imagine that today, but it was the truth back then. So, but these two witnesses were older, much older, and they were, they had had health problems, and they, they were willing to tell their story. Scott Ramsey located both of them and interviewed them. They didn't know each other. They were on the Mesa, but they didn't know each other. And they told story to Scott Ramsey. We have one of them, Doug Noland. We have his story on tape and on CD now. And you know what? They told identical stories, right down to the number of people on the Mesa, how many cops were up on the Mesa that day, a helicopter that came by. And Doug Noland got up and walked around on the saucer. What 18, 19-year-old guy doesn't do stuff like that? Right. Hey, guys, watch this. I'm just thinking you mentioned the helicopter. That must have been almost as strange a sight as the the crashed UFO itself, a helicopter in 1948. He said he never saw a helicopter before. He didn't know what was more peculiar to him, the helicopter or this 100-foot disc on the top of the Mesa. Very good. And and this is a this Heart Canyon Heart Canyon Road is this a lonely stretch of highway? I mean, how did how did how did so many people get out there so quickly? Well, this is a uh, a nest of oil fields, and there there are thousands of oil oil rigs 
in the Four Corners area. So they had oil being pumped out all along this. This is a dirt road. You leave Aztec, get on a dirt road, and go 11 miles out into the in the boondocks to get to this mesa. I've been there. And so what happened was the saucer was seen by cops before dawn southeast of Aztec. And if they were these cops were on a, a paved road, and they saw this glowing disc go over them, wobbling, headed northwest. A rancher uh, further up the road saw this thing come over his house, and it went started going north. And all of a sudden, it collided with the cliff of a mesa just over the, the creek from his house. But it didn't crash. It lifted up and went on north. This rancher named Archuleta, he went down to a store where they had a phone and where they could get to him. Again, New Mexico, 1948, private phones were very rare. And he made a long-distance call to Albuquerque to Kirtland Air Force Base to say he saw this strange thing. They asked him what it was and told him not to worry about it. Now, the cops kept following this thing, and they were able to get to Hart Canyon Mesa by whatever means they did. And around dawn, the oil field workers came, came out, not because of the saucer, but because there was smoldering fire on the Mesa area, and the oil company was afraid that there might be danger to their drip tanks where they were storing oil. So the oil field workers got there, they went up on the Mesa, and there was smoldering brush indeed, but no danger to the oil. And why yeah. why do we believe, why have we come to believe that this craft was fired upon by the military? That's speculation. Uh, in our book, we try not to, to speculate too much, and because that ends up being expectoration. But I, I think that the when they got up on the disc, Doug Nolan did, he got up close. There was a, a flat disc with a dome in the center. He goes up to the dome, and he sees circles that are portholes, except that they look like mirrored sunglasses in a time before there were mirrored sunglasses. He gets up close to it, and he sees inside the cupola, and he sees bodies slumped over a console. But there was also one tiny hole the size of a quarter in one of those portholes. And it's presumed that either there was decompression or whatever that killed everybody inside. But that's how they got into the craft, by the way. There was this quarter-sized hole in a porthole, and we don't know for sure whether it was the oil field workers or the military that actually discovered this, but they got a long pole and stuck it through this little hole, and they ended up poking some knobs inside the, the cabin and the saucer opened up. It looked like a single piece of metal, and all of a sudden, it opened up. Now, you saw the movie, we all saw the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right. And remember when the saucer opened up? That's very much how Nolan described it. It just opened up, and they were able to get inside and see uh, the dead guys. And the military, apparently, were the ones that brought out the bodies and put them on the ground, and then took them away to Los Alamos. How soon did the military arrive? Uh, there's mixed things. 
they said three to four hours, and which means that they were probably already on their way uh, when the uh, the young oil field workers were up there and the ranchers were up there. But they they say something like three to four hours, and the, the military arrived in great numbers to take over. From Albuquerque or from Roswell? What, oh, they were from Roswell uh, Army Field. And we don't know where they came from. Some people say they came from Camp Hale, Colorado, which was maybe 40 miles north of the New Mexico border. Uh, but they certainly were more efficient than the Roswell people were. Well, they, they had, a, a had, yeah, exactly. They learned a lot. They probably had a response team now all ready to go. I bet they did. Because they knew more than we did about what was really going on in the skies. How did the witnesses say the military behaved in their presence? Were they roughhousing them? Were they ordering them off the craft? Or were they just saying, stand back and let us take care of this? From what we can tell, the military was not rough, but they were very firm. They separated people into one and groups of one and two and debriefed them to explain to them that they could never speak of this for the rest of their lives, that this was national security and that they had to leave the Mesa now and not come back. And so most of them did that. And most of them never said anything for the next 50 years. Uh, however, there was one, one person who did talk, and that was a preacher. His name was Solon Brown. He was a Baptist preacher who had a church north of the New Mexico border in Mancos, Colorado. But he, had, he did missionary work. He traveled all around the Four Corners area to help people. And he was out doing his work, and he saw all these vehicles headed down this dirt road, and he thought, well, maybe there's been an accident, and he was going to help out. And he ended up on the Mesa, and what he saw there, even though he was debriefed and told to keep his mouth shut, he went to the church, or his hometown of Mancos, Colorado, and that night, and he called his deacon to the house, and the deacon's son, and he said, I have to tell you this, and he said... The deacon's son is the one who told the story to Scott, and he said, my, my whole view of the universe has changed, and he was actually weeping, and this kid remembered he'd never seen a grown man cry before, and this Baptist preacher was so shaken by what he saw on the Mesa that he had to tell somebody, and that was the last person he spoke to about it. How about the other uh, witnesses that saw the bodies? Uh, I, because I'm remembering... Uh, a Don Schmidt telling me, a Roswell investigator, talking about, I believe it was the uh, attorney general or the uh, assistant attorney general in New Mexico at the time who happened to be at the Roswell Army Field on another right. matter when he saw the bodies Correct. from the, the Roswell crash. And he went home and was absolutely in in turmoil and, you know, wanted a drink and said and just kept muttering, they're not human, they're not human. Uh, imagine That's exactly I mean, what sh the way Schmidt recorded it. Yeah, and this guy, he was, he drank whiskey out of the bottle because it was it was devastating to him. What he saw, he knew he was dealing with something that uh, couldn't be. So the other witnesses that you interviewed, or that the Ramses interviewed, that saw the bodies, how did they describe them? The description, and again, the way we read the description first was in in Frank Scully's book. They were little guys, and you described it succinctly at the beginning of the show, that they were 38, 42 inches tall. They were like little people. They were perfectly formed, 
<clears throat> they had slightly larger heads, slightly larger eyes, not much in the way of a nose. Uh, no, ear, they didn't have ear flaps, and they were dressed in one-piece uh, coverall-type suits with, with buttons on it. No, no rank insignia or anything. And that's how they were described. Except that they were, as far as their color, they seemed to be dark brown as though they were charred or overheated in some way, almost as though they were microwaved. And that's what led to the speculation about the radar. We had powerful radar in New Mexico at that time for the, before the distant early warning line was, was set up way up north in Canada. And uh, these, these radars were so powerful that they could bring down birds in flight. So, uh, well, and some I don't of know if this, some, this is all very much speculation. Of course, and some have speculated that that may have been responsible for the two discs that crashed near Corona as well, about yeah, nine months earlier. You got it. All right, we'll come back. Frank Thayer, Ph.D., co-author of the Aztec UFO Incident. This should be bigger than Roswell. It should be bigger than Roswell. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Frank Thayer stays with us. The Aztec UFO incident, the case evidence and elaborate cover-up of one of the most perplexing crashes in history. Uh, Frank, I'm trying to figure out what would be more difficult. Um, you know, Clearing out the debris field at Corona when you've got tiny pieces of, of the craft um, strewn all over the place, or you've got, at, in the case of Aztec, a 100-foot diameter craft. Uh, you got to move that out on a big truck. I mean, how how did the heck did they get that thing out of there? There's a full chapter in the book on this because it is a perplexing problem. It's an engineering problem. But Frank Scully gives us a clue as to what happened because Frank Scully says the saucer came apart in three pieces. It was held together. It was a modular craft held together by internal pins. Now I don't know how that works, but apparently that's what it was—that it could come apart in three pieces. And they used what they called the dragon wagon, which was a uh, a battlefield carrier they used to haul tanks. So you you could put this one third of the saucer, sort of like a sail, uh, vertically on the dragon wagon, and head down the canyon from from Hart Canyon, and uh, you can get to, to Los Alamos with very few people getting a chance to see what you were hauling. And uh, were there, were there? I mean, I know the military swooped in pretty quickly, and, and there wasn't a debris field, but did anyone collect any souvenirs? Was there an I-beam, you know, a la the Marcel family, anything like that? <laughs> this is the thing. Remember, this saucer was a controlled landing. It settled down on the Mesa. It was undamaged. And so, as far as we know, uh, no relics were, were harvested from it. They were able to get the whole thing back to Los Alamos, whereas at Corona, they did have to pick up tiny little pieces, and they did that for years after Roswell. They did not want anybody to have a piece of extraterrestrial material. And Aztec was a lot easier for them in that sense. Uh, did anyone describe uh, hieroglyphics uh, or any symbols on the craft the way that Marcel uh, talked about uh, the, you know the, the little uh, symbol on the the little eye beam? Interesting, you should mention that, Richard. We have 
One source says that they found what was described as a book in the craft. It looked like parchment pages, and the uh, the content of it was in hieroglyphics, as they described. And they sent that to Washington to be deciphered, and as far as we know, uh, no results ever came from it. Uh, you, it's hard to crack a code when there's nothing com- common with with your your own species. Right, right. Let me get back to the aliens for a moment. Uh, so you've got the uh, 16 little alien corpses. Um, now, again, going back to Roswell, of course, we had uh, um, uh, Glenn Dennis, the funeral uh, director in, in Roswell, receiving a call asking for tiny coffins from Roswell Air Force, uh, Air, Airfield, rather, Army Airfield. Um, and I'm trying to remember whether there was a request for dry ice in there as well. Anything, I mean, how did they handle the bodies? How did they, you know, what do you do with 16 alien bodies? How do you preserve them in the hot, well, it's not hot in March, but, you know, you've got to put them on a flatbed and dry for hours. How do you preserve them? With Roswell, it was in the middle of July, and in March, it's still not that hot in that northwestern corner. But we have, right now, we don't have enough data to really say what happened, but obviously... They were prepared for it. I would assume that they would have body bags at that point, and they would seal them up and take uh, take the bodies uh, to Los Alamos. And then, and since I know you're you're ahead of me here, they would transport them to Wright Patterson Air Force Base uh, at Dayton, Ohio, which is, they had cryogenic facilities there, and very likely that's where the bodies went. But you know they were more valuable than gold. And the actual, I mean, how do you get that, again, I know you, they, they sort of uh, took it apart, but how do you get that craft back to Wright-Patterson? Uh, and are, are, there, are we able to connect any dots? Were there people that were involved in transporting the craft uh, that, that uh, you know, were willing to talk about it? Oh, I think the tape goes blank there. We don't know. Once it got to Los Alamos, uh, it goes under the the veil of secrecy, and uh, we have no idea what happened. However, since the book came out on December 15th, we have run into a a witness who knows about the saucer being at Wright-Patterson. And that story still got to be researched and, and put together. But it was in a building, and not it wasn't Hangar 18, actually. Uh, as far as we know, it's a building uh, numbered 829, 829, and that that may be the first chapter in the third book, room 829 or building 829. We'll see. But this means that they got it there somehow, and with the, I have been, I've traveled the highways in, in New Mexico and Texas, and I've seen convoys carrying missiles, covered missiles going down uh, the interstate. So I know that the government does transport highly secret material in convoys, and there's no way of knowing what's, what's on those, those, uh, those trucks. Hidden in plain sight. All right, Frank, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and find out how you were actually able to locate the exact landing spot. The Aztec UFO incidents. Don't go away. Truth 
set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. That's right. Really tick you off. Ain't that the truth? Frank Thayer, Ph.D., one of the co-authors, along with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, of the Aztec UFO incident. And I, uh, I'll say it again. This should be bigger than Roswell. Uh, I mean, the uh, just the absolute impact of this is just incredible. We have a a, 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 a craft that's almost in pristine condition, crash lands. We have witnesses crawling all over this thing, inside and out, 16 bodies. Um, now, the in the again, let's go back to the Roswell incident. We had the the sheriff on the ground there, who, uh, as it turns out, because of the way he was sort of forced to handle some of the locals, he was he, he felt terrible and refused to run for re-election. Um, any sort of that heavy-handedness in and around Aztec, where you had either Secret Service or local law enforcement threatening to plant people in the desert, for example. I mean, how serious were these? Threats and 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 uh, and how did they gain the silence of the witnesses? You know, Scott talked to a lot of people, and apparently, from all that we can determine, there was never any kind of serious threat, such as you had in Roswell. And definitely in Roswell, there were death threats. Uh, they'll find your your bones in the desert. And what they did, they appealed to patriotism. They just said that. This is a very important national security issue. You you are not able to talk about this ever again. And it worked. There were very, very little conversation. And some people would say, well, I never talked about it. Or they refused. One fellow was who went out there, he came home, and he told his wife, uh, I didn't leave the house today, and we'll never speak of this again. And... And that, that was how, how firm he was. So the military probably had developed negotiating skills to make sure that people understood. Um, maybe the, the threats were veiled. I don't know. But they didn't talk. And that's why it remained buried for so long. Wow. They really learned their lessons from Roswell, didn't they? I mean, they went to school. Yes, indeed. And oh, you were saying a little while ago, well, uh, how did they... How did Ramsey find the place? Yes, that's the next question. And there's an interesting story here. Frank Scully never came to New Mexico, as far as we know. He didn't go to Aztec, but he was told the story by the scientists and by Silas Newton, and he described where it was within 500 miles of Denver. It was on a high, rocky plateau. It was um, so many miles from from Aztec and so on. And a fellow named William Steinman in 1982, went into a bookstore in in California, and he found a a used copy of Behind the Flying Saucers. And he was so intrigued by the story in Frank Scully's book, he got in his car and drove across two states to get to New Mexico. And he began poking around to find out where uh, this could have happened. And he, he found the Mesa. And it matched Scully's description exactly. And William Steinman brought out his own book in 1986. And I didn't find the book, that book, until 2006. And Scott Ramsey hadn't seen the book either. 
but it, he wrote, Steinman wrote, UFO crash at, at Aztec, a well-kept secret, in which he was saying that he thought it was real. But in 1986, when Steinman published his book, Scott Ramsey was doing business in New Mexico. Scott Ramsey is an electric wire guy. He sells the kind of wires you use to, to wind generators all over the country. And he was an Aztec selling wire for a generating station. And somebody was talking about going to the old crash site. He said, what old crash site? And they, they told him, well, well, it's just a story. And he decided he wanted to find out. He just got a bug in his bonnet. And he found, went out that road, found Hart Canyon Mesa, which when you get out there, it's very distinctive. And he went up on there, and that began, he says he's been on the Mesa a couple hundred times since 1986. That's how interested he is in it. And there you go. And... Did any of the witnesses go back out there with, with either you or the Ramses? Uh, it's now a very well-known place. It wasn't back then. And when I went up there, we were out on the Mesa, and it's a wonderful flat place, big enough for a 100-foot saucer to land with a little room to spare. And right at the cliff, you can go over the edge of the cliff and look down and see for miles. And when I was up there... Uh, had my picture taken, and I use it on the back cover of the book, at the plaque, a bicyclist came up there. The bicyclist come out that road, and it's become sort of a tourist spot, I think. And But it was one of those things that some people knew where it was, and other people said it never happened. Aztec is like Kecksburg, is like Roswell. Half the population says, ah, no, nah, nothing ever happened there. The other half says, yes, I know it happened. And the community's divided. Isn't that interesting? And and uh, Aztec has not uh, sort of turned this into kind of a um, you know a, a corny tourist attraction the way that Roswell has. I'm gathering. Not yet. No. And I've been to the uh, the annual thing at Roswell, and it is uh, a carnival atmosphere there. And I I would hope that Aztec would promote this, but also keep it. On the level, uh, Scott Ramsey in the in the 2000s held symposiums at the at the Aztec Library. He brought in Stanton Friedman and other notables to talk to the groups, and uh, we're hoping this year to to meet on the Mesa on March 25th, 2016, for an anniversary celebration, inviting the mayors of Farmington and Aztec and all the people who've been involved over the years and maybe do some talks at the libraries in Farmington and Aztec, just sort of to get this started again on, in the right direction. Now, Stanton Friedman, the, the original Roswell investigator, and he wrote the, yes. the, uh, the foreword to, to your book, uh, what does, how does he contrast and compare Aztec with Roswell, and does he think it's a more significant case? In talking with him, at first, for many years, he thought... He kept Aztec in his gray basket. He calls it the gray basket. And it was only after Scott presented him with the research that he began to see that it was an actual event. And since the 2012 book, he is definitely in the camp. He knows it's real. And to have his um, imprimatur 
is is really important because he's the dean and most respected person in the field. What happens once the craft uh, gets to Wright-Patterson and we start, uh, or Silas, the oil man, starts hearing from some of these scientist friends that are working on it? What what were they doing? Were they back engineering? What, what, what were they doing? I think that what they were doing, as far as we can tell, they were just trying to figure out what it was and what it did. For example, there's no means of propulsion. Uh, we now know that it's some kind of um, magnetic field propulsion that uh, powers these things. There's no thrusters, there's no propellers, there's no jets, there's no rockets. And this, of course, is of the ultimate interest to any nation who wants to use flying saucers and their mode of propulsion for military purposes. So the, the brightest guys in the nation were working on this. And I'm sure that they went to Wright-Patterson as well. Uh, but I don't think that they were able to instantly change everything. Something that I know you've thought of, too, and that is six months after Roswell, the transistor appeared. Now, that was a revolution of of technology. I'll say. And I mean, one, one day, I mean, there was no transitional technology. One day it correct. was tubes, and the next day, solid state. Just like turn of a dime. Mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of other things like that. It's been a logarithmic expansion of technology since then. And what about so the bodies? I really believe that there was, um, that there's some kind of technology that seeded all the developments that we've had since that time. Right. And, and the bodies, do you think they're still on ice there? I would say they have to be. They are too important to just throw away or bury. And in cryogenic suspension, they can be kept forever. We don't know. We've Well, Leonard Stringfield, I'm sure you know about him, he published a lot of material about autopsies and, and little men. Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, I know I've read his stuff. I think he's on the money, but he never revealed his sources, and that's... Uh, that's not good for a researcher. No. I understand why he didn't reveal the names, but obviously they've done a lot of studies on the bodies, and they know a lot more than they're ever going to tell us. Then there, of course, uh, there is the the legendary story of Jack or of um, um, Jackie Gleason, uh, yes. who was very good friends with Richard Nixon. They were they were golfing partners, and Gleason swears up and down that he was taken to this base and saw bodies. Perhaps these were the Aztec bodies. Florida. So with 16 bodies, they could afford to spread them around. That's right, like they do with the pandas in the zoos across North America. Ah, <laughs> excellent. Uh, so where, where do you go from here? Uh, you know, is there a documentary in the offing? I mean, this really, as I say, this needs to be, uh, you know, placed right up there with Roswell. So what's the next step? Well, there are producers who've been in touch with us uh, suggesting that there should be a, a full-fledged documentary and even movie-length documentary because they realize that this is a big story. In some ways, it is far more compelling than Roswell, even though I think Roswell was the, the first case that proved itself. And as you know, 
How many cases do you need to prove to say that there's such a thing as extraterrestrial visitation? You only need one that you can prove. But Aztec is number two for sure. And I think that there's going to be uh, some documentaries done, and it's just a matter of uh, lining up the uh, the talent and getting the uh, the approvals and uh, budgeting. These things cost money, as you know. How many witnesses are still with us? I would say probably nobody at this stage. From what I know, all the ranchers, the oil men have all aged and died. Because uh, look at it, what? It was 60, 60-some years ago. When 68, they were, yeah. If they were 20, they'd been in their 80s at the very youngest. And uh, working on the oil fields is not good for your health, I don't think. So I, I don't think that there are many witnesses that could be alive today. Although we do know one guy, if we could only find him. His name was Donald Bass. Donald Bass supposedly worked on the recovery when he was a young guy. He was in the Air Force. And there's chapter 3 of the book talks about him and his friend from Aztec who got the story from him. All right, well, let's we find him. No, let's find him. Listen, we are out of time, yeah. Frank. Um, uh, Scott but... Ramsey is hot on the trail. I Trust me on that. And Scott Ramsey is a bulldog when it comes to research. Well, congratulations on the Aztec UFO incident. Thank you for your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Frank, good to meet you. Me too. The Aztec UFO incident. All right, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>